Well, if I said the name Ned Flanders, how many of you know what I'm referring to? Let me just see a show of hands if you know who Ned Flanders is. You sinners. I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I grew up watching The Simpsons when my mom wasn't around. Uh, if my dad was around, we could watch The Simpsons. If my mom was around, we didn't get to watch The Simpsons. That's how that went. Maybe that's how your family was too. But in The Simpsons, there's a character named Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders is Homer Simpson's uh, happy-go-lucky Christian neighbor who just annoys him most of the time. He don't, <laughs> he don't want anything to do with him. And one of the reasons is because Ned Flanders is always happy. He never is frustrated. If you ask him how he's doing, he's going to say, okily-dokily, all right? It doesn't matter what's going on in his world. He just kind of bottles it up. He, he keeps it in. He kind of denies reality. But then one day, one episode, he explodes. He loses it because Homer and the rest of the city have been doing stuff at his house and they totally destroy his house and Ned Flanders loses his mind. He had been bottling up all that anger, all that frustration. He wasn't dealing with reality. He kept acting like everything was okay when it wasn't okay and he lost his mind. Today, we're looking at what the Bible has to say about suffering, the reality of suffering, the worthiness of suffering, the how of suffering. And if you're like Clayton, why are we talking about suffering? It's because it's the next verses in Colossians. And we're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And sometimes when you do that, and that's the great part of studying the scripture verse by verse, is you talk about some things sometimes that you wouldn't normally want to talk about. You're going to preach about something. You're going to hear about some things you, you, talk, you, you, normally, you might not want to hear about, you might not want to talk about, but that's why we study the scripture in context, verse by verse. And we've invited you, we've challenged you to join in this study of the book of Colossians, not just here, but in our city groups, our small group Bible studies, where we're diving into these verses this next week. Uh, we'll ask questions about them, we'll pray about them. And so we wanna invite you to join in that discussion. Join a city group, start a city group. You can do that on our app under the city groups tab. We've also invited you to join in this study of Colossians through our daily devotionals. Each day, Monday through Friday, we'll take one or two of these verses this next week. We'll break them down. We give you some commentary. We give you some study questions. We give you some prayer points so that you can continue to dive into God's word with us as we continue to study Colossians. So we continue to invite you and challenge you to join the study of Colossians, not just here, but in our groups and in your daily time with God. We've said the book of Colossians is like driver's ed. It's like a driver's manual for the Christian life, for how to do church. And here's what we've said the Christian or, or the book of Colossians is all about. We've said the theme is Christ supreme. Christ supreme is the theme. And if you're following along in the message notes on our app, here's where you start filling in the blank. If you don't have our app, Download it in your app store, the City Church Lubbock, and you can follow along with today's message, the points, the verses, it's all there, and that's where you can connect with our church and, and sign up for things, all kinds of things. But you can also click message notes and follow along with us. But the theme of Colossians is Christ supreme. And here's what we've said that means. That means Jesus changes everything. He affects everything in our life. It means he's worthy of our love, our faith, our worship, our adoration, our giving, our money, everything. He is worthy because he is supreme. Christ supreme means he's sufficient. He alone will fill that thirst, will quench that thirst, that hunger that is deep down in your soul, that God has placed in your heart. The scripture says God has placed eternity in your heart and nothing less than Jesus, God himself, 
can fill that hole, can fill that void, can quench that thirst. He is sufficient to do that. When we say Christ supreme is the theme, what we're also saying is that he is God's will for your life. That it, God's will for your life is a person. It is Jesus himself. He is supreme. And so last week we talked about verses 15 through 23, why we believe Christ is supreme. We believe Christ is supreme, Paul said, because he's God, he's alive, he proved to be God by rising from the grave, and that means he is savior. This week, we're going to talk about, here's our big idea, that Christ is supreme even in suffering. Christ is supreme even in my suffering. So let's go to Colossians chapter one. Uh, scroll down in the app on the message notes, open your Bible, Colossians chapter one. We're gonna look at verse 24 through 29. We're gonna break this down into three sections. And here's the first one. Here's the first thing Paul wants you to know about suffering. He wants you to know the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. Let's go, Colossians one. Verse 24, I'm glad, Paul says, when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Paul isn't some sort of weird Ned Flanders kind of Christian. He admits the reality of suffering. He says, I am suffering. It is for my ultimate good and for the glory of God. We'll get to that here in a little bit. And so he says, it's for good. That's why I'm glad, but the suffering itself is not good. And he says, I am suffering. He says something kind of strange here. I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now you may have a translation that says it like this. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. So let's chat about this for a second because that's confusing. If you're Protestant, if you uh, ha have a Reformation kind of faith like I do, uh, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, if you have that kind of faith or belief system, and I hope that you do, this is confusing. This is a weird verse. And very bad doctrine has been formulated based on this one verse. Very bad. And I'm not trying to bash any church or denomination, but Roman Catholicism has got this verse dead wrong when they teach that you must continue to punish yourself or endure punishment in this life or the next to somehow make yourself right with God so that your sin can be forgiven. And so the wrath of God might be appeased for your sin. They've gotten it dead wrong. Very bad doctrine is formulated off one unclear verse. And that's what's happened with this verse. Cult leaders, false teachers, False teaching are often building doctrine on unclear, one unclear verse. And so if you've been here for very long, you know we've said this. We interpret the hard to understand verses with the easy to understand verses. We always interpret the Bible with the Bible. So if we have something that's not clear, we interpret it with the very clear. And we've got very clear scripture in the, the New Testament and from Paul that helps us understand what he's really saying here. And, and so here's what scholars believe Paul is saying here, it's one of three things, and I think it's kind of a combination. There's a little bit of all these things involved in what Paul's saying. So number one, scholars have said, well, what Paul is saying is that his, uh, his participating in the sufferings of Christ are like Christ's in that the church is the body of the crucified Messiah. And so it's in this sense that we share in his sufferings. He's the head of the church. We talked about this last week. We are his body. And so in this sense, we share in the sufferings of Christ because we're the body of Christ. And so Paul says, my sufferings are, are, are like his, okay? 
But that doesn't fully answer the question here because in the Greek language, it, it, there does have this idea of kind of a filling up of what is lacking. And so, so let's continue to chat about this. So, so in one, he's talking about his sufferings being like Christ that, because we're the, the church, we're the body. Two, he's saying maybe that he is suffering, he's participating, he's sharing in the sufferings of Christ for Christ. And in the same way, the gospel is accomplished through the suffering of Jesus on the cross. The gospel is advanced through the suffering of the body of Christ. The head of the church suffered so that we might be right with God so that the gospel, the good news could be made available to you and I. But now the body of Christ suffers to advance and to spread the gospel. So that, that kind of helps us maybe see, okay, may, maybe that's what he's talking about. There's something lacking here. So it's definitely not in my legal standing before God because Jesus said it's finished, it's done. Hebrews teaches us that he died once and for all for your sin, past, present, and future. Once and for all, our great high priest lives forever. The work is done, it is finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father proving that the work is finished. And yet at the same time, we do still suffer in this life. And, and so we, and we must suffer. You'll see here in just a little bit for the advance of the gospel, the, the spread of the gospel takes sacrifice. It takes suffering. And so maybe Paul here is talking about his sufferings for Christ and the way the church must continue to suffer and to sacrifice for the spread of the gospel. Third, like Christ for Christ, third, until Christ until Christ, that these sufferings that he's sharing or participating in are going to continue. They're not done until this age is over. The scripture calls this this present evil age and the new age comes when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom here on this earth. There's a new city, there's a new earth, there's a new body where we reign with Christ on this new eternal redeemed earth forever. And, and Paul's saying there's kind, of a, there's kind of an overlap here between this present evil age, the age that's to come, and those are the birth pains that we read about in the scripture. These sufferings that we experience still in this life are these birth pains of this new, this new kingdom that's coming in the age of the Messiah. And so Paul's talking about how he and we absorb some of this pain. We go through some of these birth pains that we must endure before Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom when all things are renewed. Now, that's amazing and that's awesome. And we'll get to that more here in just a second. We, we long for that. But Paul is still saying, I'm, I'm suffering here. And the suffering in and of itself is not good. And the scripture teaches us that we will suffer in this life. Jesus said to his followers, you will endure many trials and tribulations before you are in the presence of the Father. You, you will endure trials and tribulations. So Christian, make, make no mistake, just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean everything's gonna be hunky-dory in your life, oakley-dokley, in Ned Flanders' words, okay? It doesn't mean everything's gonna be oakley-dokley, okay? It means Jesus told us ahead of time, you will suffer in this life before you enter glory. And how many of us know about that phone call that can change absolutely everything? I've gotten that phone call in the middle of the night with the worst kind of suffering in my family. I'm sure some of you have too. That call from the doctor, that call from a family member, a friend, you've gotten that phone call. And if you haven't, it's coming. If you haven't yet, 
It is coming. Because the scripture teaches us we, we suffer in this life in all kinds of different ways. Here, here are some examples. We suffer because of the curse. There's curse suffering. This world and everything in it, including our bodies, are cursed because of sin. And so everything in this world is dying and will die one day. And so we experience the curse that's that's sickness, that's famine when it comes to natural disasters because the, the ground has also been cursed. That's disease, that's pain. We, we experience these things because of the curse. There's demonic suffering. Even as, as Christians, we engage in spiritual warfare. We're not going to be oppressed or, or, or possessed by a, a demon, but we could be oppressed where Satan is resisting us and you experience the, the spiritual warfare and the kingdom of God that is unseen. That's, that's demonic suffering. There's victim suffering where somebody hurts you, abuses you in some way. It wasn't your fault, you were the victim. They, they hurt you and so you're a victim and you suffer for that. There's collective suffering. This is like 9-11, when we corporately suffer together as a unit because something has affected a corporate identity and so we all suffer as a result. There's disciplinary suffering where God as a perfect heavenly father disciplines, the scripture says, his kids. He disciplines those he loves because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And he uses the discipline to get you back onto the straight and narrow and to get you pursuing Jesus once again, because that's your ultimate good. That's your purpose in this life. We said that last week. And so God will use discipline. There's persecution suffering. That's what Paul is enduring right now, where you are persecuted for your faith in Jesus or for preaching the good news about the gospel. There's empathetic suffering. The scripture tells us that in the body of Christ, we weep with those who we, we mourn with those who mourn. And so when someone in your family or some, one of your friends or, or someone in your church is suffering or hurting, we weep with them and we hurt with them. That's empathetic suffering. There's providential suffering where God is doing something so much bigger than you could possibly understand, like in the case of Joseph. Joseph suffered greatly, but in doing so, God used that suffering to then elevate him to a position in Egypt of leadership where he could not only bless his own people, but bless all the nations through the leadership of Joseph, but God had him suffer greatly to prepare him for that stage and for that position. So sometimes there's providential suffering. God's just doing something that we don't totally understand until much later. There's punishment suffering. You do the crime, you do the time. There's consequential suffering. This is sowing and reaping, okay? If you eat Whataburger three times a day and never work out, you're going to reap the consequences of that. <laughs> That's sowing, and reaping, that's consequential suffering. There's apocalyptic suffering. This is in the tribulation that's to come. Some people believe uh, this, this tribulation will occur after Jesus returns and raptures his church. And if you're like me, you believe we'll go through the tribulation and then Jesus will return. But regardless, the tribulation is coming. And in this season, there will be an intense time of suffering, of evil and war and things like that. It will be intense. It will be overwhelming like the world has never experienced ever before in all of its history. That's apocalyptic suffering. Then there's eternal suffering, which is the worst kind, where you experience the wrath of God for all of eternity for your sin because you rejected his son, Jesus. Imagine offending, infinitely offending an infinite, heavenly, righteous, powerful father. 
because you rejected his son. It's the worst offense imaginable in the eyes of God to reject his son, who is God himself. But regardless of the suffering that you've experienced in this life, I think we can all agree confuse, or suffering is confusing. It's complicated. A lot of times we experience different kinds of suffering all at the same time. And we ask why. And if you've been there before, it's oftentimes the answer to that question or the non-answers to that question that just really don't help. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, that when you're suffering, you don't need a cute verse. You don't need someone's cute philosophy statement. When you're suffering, C.S. Lewis said, you need Jesus. You need the presence and reality of Jesus right there next to you, walking with you through the valley of the shadow. You need a person. You need a who, not an answer to a why. And so C.S. Lewis said, we need Jesus when we're in pain, when we're suffering. And last week, we said the purpose of life is Jesus. It's his fame, it's his glory, and it's in being in a relationship with Jesus where we find ultimate satisfaction <clears throat> and joy. And so if our suffering then points us to Jesus, to the person of Jesus, to a relationship with Jesus, then even our suffering can serve the glory of God and our ultimate good. Paul David Tripp, author and theologian, said it like this. One of the most dangerous things in our lives is blindness to the depth of our spiritual need. It's one of the most dangerous things in this life is the blindness to our spiritual need, both in salvation and for the saints, even in our daily lives. And so by his mercy, God will oftentimes allow suffering into our lives to reveal our lack of control, to reveal how unsteady, this life really is, how shaky the things of this life really are, and to show us our ultimate need, Jesus. And so sometimes by his mercy, God will allow things into your life to reveal your lack of control, your need for Jesus and salvation, your need for Jesus in your daily life. And so because of that, we aggressively confront idolatry in our lives so that in the day of suffering, we find that we've been trusting in Jesus and that he was enough. Not in beauty, not in money, not in stuff that will never be enough. And then ultimately you will find is worthless in the day of your suffering. So we aggressively confront idolatry so that in the day of suffering, when that phone call comes, we find that we've been trusting in Jesus because he alone is enough. So Paul here wants us to know about the reality of suffering. Secondly, he's gonna to talk to us about now the worthiness of suffering. The worthiness of suffering. Why someone would be willing to endure sacrifice or suffering. Why they would be willing to. Look what he says. 
Verse 25, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. So Paul's telling you why he is suffering, why he's actually in chains for Christ right now in prison, writing this letter. He says, God has given me this responsibility to proclaim his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. That, that's me and you, Paul says, I'm, I'm suffering in chains for Christ for preaching about Jesus. That same Jesus we looked at last week in 15 to 23, who is God, who is alive, who is savior. Paul has no wife, no kids. He's in prison for Jesus. And he says, it's all worth it. I'm glad, Paul says, that I'm suffering for you, for the church, and for the sake of the Gentiles who've never heard. They've never heard about Jesus. They don't know the good news about Christ. And Paul was called, his ambition, his calling was to go and to preach Christ where he had never been preached before, so that those who've never heard would heard the good news about Jesus. And so Paul says, it's worth it. If this is what I have to endure for the sake of Christ, it's worth it. And Paul says, God's secret plan isn't a timetable of events. It's not a standard of living. It's not to make you comfortable. That's not God's secret plan. God's secret plan is a person, Jesus. And he has revealed him and he's made him known. And Paul says, so my suffering is ultimately worth it. And I'm glad for it because of what it's producing in the church as a whole and the way it is offering now the gospel to the Gentiles who've never heard about Jesus. You see, gospel advancement always takes a willingness to sacrifice. It always does. It always takes suffering. That's why there are still so many unreached people groups on the face of the planet right now. An unreached people group is a people group where less than 2% of the people in that people group are evangelical Christian. And 40% of the world's population lives in unreached people groups. Here's what that means. 40% of the world's population will be born, live, and die, never hear the name of Jesus, never see a church, never have their hands on a Bible. David Platt one time I heard said, the idea that there are unreached people groups that will be born, live, and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus must be untenable to a follower of Jesus. It must be untenable. It must rock us and break us to our very core that there are people living in unreached people groups on earth. It must be untenable. But the reason that's the case is because it takes sacrifice. It takes suffering to get the gospel to these places. It takes getting uncomfortable. It takes being inconvenienced. Even in our own country, Evangelistic progress has slowed. You've probably seen the stats, you've read the stories. A lot of them are true. We are losing ground in our country. I'm not talking about politically. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about evangelistically. I'm talking about making disciples and planting churches. Even 10 years ago, I, I heard 3,000 churches a year were shutting their doors in our country. We, we are losing ground, folks, and the reason for that is that we have lost our evangelistic zeal, our disciple-making zeal, our church-planting zeal, because to do any of those things, it takes getting uncomfortable. It takes some sacrifice. It takes some willingness 
to suffer. We've gotten too comfortable in our big churches with a ministry for every little thing and every little life stage that does all the events that we like for me and my family. And we've lost our zeal. We've gotten too comfortable. And so none of us are willing to sacrifice or be inconvenienced to go help start a new church or to go share our faith with someone. And so we've lost this zeal in our own country because we are comfortable. We've gotten too comfortable. We are asleep at the wheel and we're experiencing the consequences of that. You know, when you're asleep, when you're comfortable, you oftentimes don't even know what you're missing out on. It's kind of like pain. When you experience pain, that's an actual, that's, that's a good thing because it tells you something's wrong. I got to get this fixed. I got to get this healed. I, I need a doctor because I'm in pain or I'm sick. And so it alerts you. It's God's great mercy to us that we experience pain so that we can get the help that we need. But, but if you're asleep spiritually and you're comfortable spiritually, then you don't even know what you're missing out on. And you're missing out on getting to go to work with your heavenly father to redeem a lost and dying world. And Paul says that that's worth it. That's worth suffering for. So maybe the worst kind of suffering in this life is suffering and not even knowing it. You can't feel it. You don't know what you're missing out on. You don't know reality. Maybe the worst kind of suffering is not having found the thing worth suffering for in this life. You don't even know what you're missing out on. We're eating hot dogs. We could be having filet mignon and we don't even know it. We're missing out because we're asleep. We're comfortable. We haven't found the thing worth suffering for. And to Paul, that would be a tragedy. Look what he says in Philippians chapter three, verse eight. Yes, everything is worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else. I've counted everything else as a loss. For his sake, every, nothing else compares, he's saying. Even to suffering for his sake. I've lost everything. I've discarded everything for his sake, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer, watch what he says. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I believe I become righteous through faith in Christ. So Paul says, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. You don't do better and try harder your way into the kingdom of God. You, you don't get baptized and, and get into the kingdom of God. You, you don't take the Lord's Supper enough times and get into the kingdom of God. I, I don't count on obeying the law, Paul says, anymore. I used to think like that. I used to think that my own righteous good works would somehow make me acceptable to pleasing to God. But I don't believe that anymore. I've given my life to Jesus. He died. He rose again and said, follow me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I've given my life to Jesus, Paul says. I'm saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I've abandoned this idea, and this is what Christians believe, and this is what hopefully you've done. And if you haven't, then you're, then you're not a Christian. We've abandoned the idea that we could somehow be acceptable or pleasing to God or do enough good things or try harder or do better in my way into the kingdom of God. We've abandoned that idea and we've said, no, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone who died in my place for my sin. And Paul says, I'm counting on Jesus, not on myself. Not what I can do, it's about what he's done. That's the gospel. It's not I do, it's, it's done. 
and he did it. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus before, maybe like Paul, you've been trusting in your own good works, establishing your own righteous standing before God, abandon that today, give your life to Jesus, trust that it's Jesus alone who saves you and makes you right with God and gives you this righteous standing. Paul says, God has a way of making us right with God. We don't come up with our own way of getting right with God and to go to heaven when we die. It's God's heaven, he came up with a way, it's based on faith alone and his son, Christ alone. And so give your life to Jesus today. If you've never done that, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving life to Jesus today. But Paul says, I've given my life to Jesus. And then he says this, I wanna know Jesus. I wanna grow in this relationship with Jesus and experience this mighty power that raised him from the dead. Watch this. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, his death. I'm dying to my old way of living. I'm dying to being asleep and comfortable. I'm dying to the way that I used to live this life. I'm dying to all of that because there is something worth living and dying for and his name is Jesus. Paul found the thing worth suffering for. He found the thing worth dying for. And it changed his life. And it can change your life too. If you could find that thing that's worth suffering and dying for, sacrificing for, it will absolutely change your world. It will throw the entire world for you and the entire universe just upside down when you find that thing worth suffering for. And like Paul, listen church, every last one of us are called to sacrifice to be inconvenienced, to get uncomfortable, and to suffer for the cause of Christ. Every last one of us. Some of us have gotten it totally wrong, thinking, well, if I felt called to go to an unreached people group, then I might be called to sacrifice and sell my stuff and, and go live among an unreached people group and, and suffer and die for Christ. But I, I'm, I'm called to, to be here, so that means I'm not called to sacrifice. Wrong. That is wrong. We've bought into that lie in our country, but that's wrong. You see, whether you're called here or called to go there to the unreached people group, you are called to sacrifice. We're called to sacrifice here for the sake of the gospel in the church, like Paul's saying he's doing. We're also called to sacrifice here so that others can go there. But either way, we're called to sacrifice for the cause of Christ, much less... <laughs> attend, give, and serve. I mean, let's just get real, let's be honest. I mean, most of us don't wanna be inconvenienced to even get to church. Much less serve or, or get to be inconvenienced in that way. I, I've, I've told you last week, I, I've traveled the world. I've been in almost every context of and construction of church. And here's what I've, I've found. People who love Jesus are willing to be inconvenienced to grow in their relationship with Jesus, to be a part of the body of Christ, to serve the body of Christ and to spread the gospel. I've been at pastor's conferences where pastors have walked 10 hours just to get there and then have the training and then walk 10 hours back to their village. And then I heard a year ago from some of my wife and I's friends that own a babysitting company called Seeking Sitters. Maybe you've heard of it. It's where they provide background check licensed babysitters to come and, and to provide babysitting for your family. And I was talking with the owners one day and 
He said, yeah, because he knew I was a pastor. He said, yeah, we do a lot of work with churches. And I said, oh, really? Oh, okay. What, what do you mean? And he said, well, churches will contract us to provide babysitters to come and watch their kids during their services. Churches are paying money and they're outsourcing people to come in to watch their kids during a service. Why do you think that is? Because their own people aren't willing to. Listen, if you're a non-Christian, I don't expect you to get this, but if you're a Christian, I expect you to think that's sick. That is sick, folks. Now, I want God to bless his business. I just want it to be through parents like me and like you that need his services. I'd rather it not be through churches paying him because their own people won't, in our city, won't watch the kids, volunteering kids, disciple, they have no vision for the kids' ministry for the next generation. They aren't willing to be inconvenienced at all for the cause of Christ and their own church. Now, I hope I'm terribly confused about all, about all this. I, I hope I'm thinking about this wrong. I just don't think I am. And I think it's embarrassing. I praise God that we're not one of them, but let's not, be, let's not let it become that, right? Because that's embarrassing. We are called to sacrifice for the cause of Christ, whether that's here or to go there or to support others who are going there, Paul says it is worth it. Suffering is worth it for Jesus. Third, Paul's gonna talk to us about the how of suffering. How do we suffer? How do we survive when we're suffering? How do we make it through that darkest night that we just sang about a second ago? How do we make it through the valley of the shadow of death? Well, let's keep reading in Colossians chapter one, verse 27, he says this, and this is the secret. Christ lives in you. That's the secret, Paul says. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance, watch what he says, of sharing in his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why, watch what Paul says, I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works in me. Paul says, I work. I struggle hard. I am willing to suffer because of two things. This is how, this is how we suffer. Number one, Paul says, we suffer, this is how, with Christ, with Christ in me. This is the new covenant that God promised where he would place his spirit inside of us, the presence of God inside of us. He would write our law, his laws on our hearts and he would move us from the inside out to worship him and obey him and serve him and sacrifice for him and suffer. I mean, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we do these things. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter seven, we serve and worship God in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code where there was external pressure to do something and to check these boxes in order to be pleasing to God and to go through this routine. No, Paul says we serve and worship in the new way of the spirit. And so 
Paul says, that's, that's how I'm suffering through Christ's power in me. The spirit inside of me is moving me and supernaturally strengthening me for the work at hand, for the task at hand. And so it's Christ in me, Paul says, that's my hope to experience or live for anything real and of eternal value. It's Christ in me that's my hope for salvation, sanctification, and even suffering. Christ in me will move me from the inside out. My heart will beat for the things that's on God's heart and to suffer for them, to sacrifice, to be inconvenienced for those things because it's Christ in me. It's his spirit moving inside of me that gives me a desire for these things and empowers me to suffer or to work hard or to struggle for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, how do we suffer? Paul said like this, with hope. We suffer with hope. Paul said, look in verse 27. This gives you the assurance, Christ in us gives us the assurance of sharing his glory. We have the assurance of sharing in the glory of God. And so ultimately our hope is that God is even using our suffering for our good and for his glory. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter chapter four. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. If you are suffering and when you suffer and one day when you suffer, Peter is saying, don't think that's strange. It's not strange. That, that's not weird. It's in this life, because of the curse of sin, it's, it's actually kind of weird when we're not suffering. And so Peter says, don't, don't think that's strange as something weird or different was happening to you. Instead, be very glad, like, like Paul said, and for the same reasons Paul said, not, not that it's good, but that it's for good. So be very glad because why? For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory. Seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. Our hope in Christ is that we will see his glory. Paul said in Colossians 1, it's the assurance of sharing in his glory. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Paul is like, listen, when you get to glory, the suffering that you experience in this life will be like a blip on a radar. It will be like a night, one night in a bad hotel because that's how amazing the glory of God is going to be, church. That's how incredible it's going to be. We will look back on this life, the blip on this radar and think, man, that was just like a bad night in a hotel, but I'm in the glory of God. And that is yours if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And so we're looking forward to that day. We suffer now looking forward to that day. For all creation, Paul says, is waiting eagerly for this future when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, but with eager hope, circle those words, underline those words, but with eager hope, we suffer with hope the creation looks forward to this day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay.
One day the sickness is going to be over. The suffering is going to be done. God's going to make all things new. And if you are in Christ, that is yours. There will be freedom from death and decay, from sin and suffering. For we know that all creation has been grown. And the pains of childbirth, as this new age is, approach, is approaching right up to the present time, and we believers also grow, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from the sin and suffering, and we too wait with eager hope for that day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. And so Christian, let me just remind you, if you aren't seeing the glory yet, then God's not done yet. If you aren't seeing the glory yet, then God's not done yet. Now that doesn't mean you're gonna see the glory in this life. Maybe like Job, after his suffering, God will reward you tenfold back in this life. We, we, we aren't guaranteed that, but what Jesus promised all of us as his followers is that one day, Anyone who has suffered or sacrificed or been inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel, for Jesus and for his name, they will be rewarded as all things will be redeemed. And so Paul says, we, we mourn, we struggle, we sacrifice, we suffer with hope because we believe that all of this suffering, regardless of its form, will be redeemed and rewarded one day. So we willingly, Paul says, gladly work, sacrifice, and even suffer for Christ. Now, when you're suffering, I think you can take one of four stances. After all of this, you can still take one of four stances. And, and, and normally, we, we find ourselves in one of these places, in one of these mindsets, in one of these stances when we're suffering. First one is the winner's stance. This is, I'm gonna punch cancer right in the face. I've got this, I can do this. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Cancer's got nothing on me. That, that's the winner's stance. And if you've ever been there before, you realize how fruitless and hopeless that stance really is. Because my guess is if you've ever thought like that or believed that as I have before, you get to the end of yourself and you're like, I don't got this, I, I can't do this. Uh, and that's a great place to be. I can't do this. And when you get to that place, it automatically leads you to, I need help. And that's a great place to be. Our confidence is not in us. Paul said the secret is Christ in us. He's the hope of glory. It's not me. It's not my best effort. It's not doing better or trying harder. It's not centering myself or finding myself. It's not what, what doesn't kill me makes me strong. It's not that kind of self-reliance. That, that kind of stance is, is hopeless. Could be the loser stance you find yourself in. I can't do this. I don't have this. My life's over. It's a pervasive stance. It's a pervasive way of thinking where you actually begin to find your identity in the suffering. Paul didn't find his identity in his suffering. He confessed the reality of suffering, but he wasn't overwhelmed by or it didn't become pervasive in his life. He didn't find his identity in his suffering. There's the Prosperity stance. 
where you believe that if you have enough faith, that God will make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous once again. And you say things like, I, I declare that by his wounds, I am healed and I rebuke cancer because it's not God's will for me to be sick, poor, or sad. Why don't you ask John the Baptist that question? John the Baptist sent his followers to Jesus and said, hey, I'm in, I'm in prison. The Messiah is supposed to come and, and to heal the sick and to care for the poor. Are you the one that we were hoping in? And Jesus says, yes, and then leaves him in prison and his head is chopped off. And Jesus said about John the Baptist, there was no one greater than him. Now there's no one greater than John the Baptist, but I'm gonna leave him in prison. His head's gonna be chopped off, but I am still who I said I am. His suffering didn't change that. You got Jesus, you got Paul, you got the disciples who had nothing. Instead of Jesus, he didn't have a place to lay his head. They had nothing and they suffered and died for the gospel. Now, John got his island for a little bit, but they had already tried to boil him alive and it didn't work. God spared him in that moment. And so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. But all the disciples suffered and died as martyrs for the cause of Christ. This prosperity stance is silly. And I believe it's one of the worst heresies in our country today. Finally, you could have the worship stance. The worship stance says, it is well with my soul and to live is Christ, like Paul said in Philippians 1, and to die is gain. The purpose of my life is Jesus. And so if my suffering is pointing me to Jesus, then even my suffering is serving the glory of God and our ultimate Good. Paul is suffering, but none of it defines him. His identity in his suffering, his identity is in his Savior. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. Here's our big idea. Christ is supreme even in my suffering because everything, all of the suffering in my life as a child of God, God is going to use for my good. He's working it all together for good and for glory. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's yours. And I challenge you to have the kind of faith that says it's worth it. I challenge you to have the kind of faith that says, even if, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God can rescue me, but even if he doesn't here in this moment, that changes nothing. We will still worship our God. This is the kind of faith that says it is well because Jesus is enough. You know, that hymn was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio was a successful lawyer, real estate investor in Chicago. He and his wife, Anna, had one son and four daughters. They lived a life of philanthropy and service to their church. So they were good people. They were good Christian people. In 1871, they lost their four-year-old son to scarlet fever. A few months later, the great Chicago fire wiped out the majority of their property holdings. They lost everything, kind of like Joe. He still had his wife and his four daughters though, but two years later, tragedy struck again. The Spaffords were going on a trip to visit Europe by ship. Some family business kept Horatio behind. So his wife and their four daughters go ahead on the ship. Only Anna survived when their ship struck another and quickly sank. 
Anna sent a telegram back to her husband, Horatio. Saved alone, their four daughters drowned in the ocean. Horatio got on another vessel to cross the ocean to meet Anna and his ship began to pass over the exact same place where his daughter had drowned. And as the ship approached and crossed those exact same waters, he penned the lyrics for the hymn, It Is Well. It is well with my soul. This hymn doesn't diminish or gloss over pain and tragedy, but rather it proclaims that God is present and even greater than the sufferings that we face. One of the most powerful hymns in all of church history was born out of great suffering and intense pain. The words of that song go like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, he, he's approaching the place where his daughters drown. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows, he's looking at the sea and the waves and the billows of the sea. And he's saying, that's the sorrow that I'm experiencing right now. When my sorrows are like, they just continue to roll endlessly with no stop, overwhelming. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Remember the assurance of glory we just talked about. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He's looking to the gospel. He's looking to Jesus in the midst of his suffering. He's saying, God, praise you for saving my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. He's looking ahead to the glory that will be revealed. Haste that day when the clouds will be rolled back and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that in this moment by your spirit, even in our pain, even in our suffering, would you just cause worship to rise up inside of us? That, that even if kind of faith, that it is well kind of faith, that it's worth it kind of faith, that glory is coming kind of faith, that glory is just around the corner. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you bring comfort? Would you bring hope? And would you bring just a rising renewal of faith? God, just cause it to rise up inside of us. Even in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name.